So have you ever gotten tangled up in something? Ever gotten ever got tangled up in something? Maybe the Christmas tree lights, maybe the some fishing line, maybe some some rope from your boat, maybe some computer cords, maybe you got tangled up in some conspiracy theories, maybe you got tangled up in, in a rainbow mermaid snuggie. Maybe you got tangled up in your hair, you know, the last few weeks because it's just gotten a little out of control. Well, in many places and in many memes, lately it has been said that our lives are parallel to the movie Tangled. Yeah, the movie Tangled. Tangled is a a reimagining of the classic story of Rapunzel. Uh, Rapunzel in the movie is locked away in a tower for 17 years, and during that time, her hair, like many of ours, has grown really, 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 really long. Her hair is long, and as the story goes, it's her long hair that gets her tangled up in all kind of trouble and tangled up in all kinds of adventure. But unlike my long hair, her long hair was magical. But it wasn't magical enough to rescue her or free her. She needed a dashing hero, Eugene Fitzherbert, to come and and rescue her from her tower. I was looking this week, and you may be a a Disney movie person, and I I saw an article actually a few weeks ago, and it had an interesting line in it. It said, Tangled is better than frozen in every way. Yeah, so if you're, you know, battling between those two movies, there there you go. But but this person was saying, Tangled is better than frozen in every way, and then they had some, some lively banter about the characters and some of the things, and then they said this about the plots of both movies. At the end of the day, what I'm looking for in a Disney movie is something akin to wish fulfillment. I don't want to imagine myself as a princess in a magical land still having to deal with the same old sister problems. I want to be a princess who falls in love with a handsome rogue. (laughs) You know, we could make similar claims right now, right? We are all in this, this state where what we have is something akin to wish fulfillment. We want a wish to be granted. We want everything that's happiness, happening around us to, to somehow magically disappear or change. We don't want to be on our land with the same stay-at-home problems. We want to fall in love with a handsome rogue or at the very least get a handmade pretzel from the mall. We we want things to be different. But you know, life isn't always like a a Disney movie, is it? Everything that's that's tangled up can't always be quickly untangled with magical long hair or a strong frying pan or, or a cute song. So what do we do? What do we do when when life feels like a a huge tangled up mess and we can't untangle ourselves? What do we do when when that tangling begins to to define who we are? How do we get untangled? The Apostle Paul was writing to some folks in a place called Thessalonica. And he was writing to them for a purpose. He, He wanted to help them avoid certain conspiracy theories. And he wanted to help them find some hope for the future. Think we can make any connections with that? So what does he do? What does he tell them? Well, what does he tell them 
to try to help them not get tangled up, discouraged, and bogged down in their circumstances. Let's find out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. Paul writes, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. What kind of report could be given about us over the last two months? Have we turned from idols and turned to God? Have we turned from the idols of fear, the idols of frustration? Have we turned from the idols of anger or apathy, the idols of impatience or or criticism? Have we turned from the idols inside the refrigerator? Have we turned from the idols inside of our smartphones? And why should we do that? I mean, why should we turn from an idol to begin with? Well, 950 years about before Paul wrote his letter, the psalmist wrote something to us about idols. This is what the psalmist writes, Psalm 115. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Those are sharp words designed to help our hearts see that watching our idols, driving our idols, gaming on our idols, scrolling through our idols, eating our idols from the cookie jar, that that all of those things will never help our souls. The only thing that can help your soul is the living and true God. The only thing that can help your soul is the living and true God. The folks in Thessalonica, they got it. See, their faith wasn't defined by whether or not they could sit in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. Their faith was defined by serving the living and true God. That's what defined their faith. Their faith was defined by serving God, not defined by sitting in the church room and not defined by watching the church Zoom, but defined by serving God. Their faith was defined by serving the true and living God before a pandemic, during a pandemic, and after a pandemic. Nothing changed in their faith. Their faith was still set on God. And why did they do such a thing? Why did they live in that way? Because the living and true God is not a pastor. He's not a politician. He's not a parent. He's not a paramedic. He's not a phlebotomist. He's not a part-time server at a snowball stand. No, he is the living and true God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was 
and is and is to come. I can't describe exactly what God looks like, but I can tell you this. I can take the scriptures and I can tell you that he has, according to all that we see, he has a mouth. And when he speaks, the wind stands still. According to the scriptures, he has eyes and he can see the tiniest cell in your body. According to the scriptures, he has ears and he can hear the quietest cry in the corner of an emergency room. According to what we see in the Bible, God in some way since he, he has a nose and he can smell the smallest aroma of humility and kindness and obedience in your life. And according to the scriptures, God has hands. And if you are in Christ, there is no virus, there is no vaccine, there is no vandalism, there is no vote, there is no valley of any shadow of any death that can ever snatch you out of his hands. The Bible says that God has feet. And there is coming a day when those in heaven and on earth will fall and bow down at his feet and then all will be transferred to the kingdom of light or transferred to the kingdom of darkness. There, there are no other options. And every person who trusts in the living God will not be disappointed. Every person who trust in the living God will not be disappointed. But you will be disappointed in your pastor. And you will be disappointed in your politician. And you will be disappointed in your spouse. And you will be disappointed with your parents and your kids. You'll be disappointed with that lady behind you in line at the store that has the audacity to not have a mask on. And you'll be disappointed with that guy when the church regathers that has the audacity to wear a mask at church. You're going to be disappointed. But if you are in Christ, you will never, no, never, no, never be disappointed in God. Why? Well, see, these folks in Thessalonica, they, they learned the key was to serve the Lord, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. And when you are serving the true and living God, you have something in your tank that is amazing. Something that can, can slay the dragon of fear in a millisecond. Something that can, can pierce the darkness of your despair and, and blow in mesmerizing light. And what is that? What is that thing? Well, quite simply, it is hope. What kind of hope? Paul tells us, look at verse 10. They're serving the true and living God. And they're also doing this. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. This is how you get untangled, okay? 
This is how you get untangled. You wait for Jesus. You look for Jesus. You long for Jesus. You expect Jesus to come around the corner for the last time at any moment. Now, does that mean that you're supposed to live in fear? You know, like you, you're so afraid you, you won't go get a chalupa and a pineapple, you know, whip freeze because you're afraid that Jesus is going to come when you're in the drive-thru? No. That's not what it means. Does it mean you're supposed to abandon your family and, and go live in a yurt outside of Jerusalem on a hill and, and eat nothing but locust and wild honey? No, that's not what it means. This is what it means. It means that no matter what you're tangled up in, that you keep whispering to your soul, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, you tell your soul, when he comes again, he'll make all things new. He'll make all things right. And, and I'll get this new, cool body. A body that is finally and fully saved to sin no more and to be sinned against no more. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. And dear Christian, let me say this. Until Christ comes again, everything is not going to be new and everything is not going to be all right and we need to embrace that. We need to embrace it so that we can fight against our flesh. When our flesh tells us that our, our stress and our anger and our frustration and our discouragement and our despair over people or over politics or over pandemics or parenting or, or panic over college football, when, when our flesh tells us that those things actually are more powerful over our emotions than the resurrected Christ. Don't miss that. There is nothing and no one in the universe that has more power and more authority over your life than the risen Jesus. No one. Therefore, the resurrection of Christ really matters on Easter Sunday. And it really matters on Senior Adult Sunday. And it really matters on Graduation Sunday. And it really matters on Mother's Day and Father's Day and Memorial Day and the third day after Tuesday a month from now. The resurrection of Jesus matters. It matters. It matters. The letter to the Hebrews described why Jesus is the priest of priests and the pastors of pastors and the shepherd of shepherds and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How, how, how does Jesus have, have that much title? How does he have, have that much authority and that much power? This is why. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus has become this way not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Jesus of Nazareth was, was brutally crucified on a Roman cross. He physically, physiologically died. But he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the grave. He conquered the grave. He robbed the grave. He conquered death. And if that's true, then it changes everything. 
If you're believing in and trusting in and relying on Jesus as your only source of ultimate salvation, then listen, you've got something to hope in. You've got something you can trust. You've got something you can depend on. What? What is it? You have the power of an indestructible life. That's what, that's what you have in Christ. See, it was absolutely impossible. It was never, ever going to happen that Jesus was going to stay dead. It wasn't going to happen. It was absolutely impossible because his life is indestructible. And if you've repented of your sin, if you've put your faith first and most in that indestructible life in Christ, then that means you have a living hope that no virus can snatch away. A living hope because death no longer is master over Jesus. Therefore, if you are in Christ, death is no longer master over you. And if that's not enough, then, then lick the icing on the top of this case. In addition to that, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is, is coming again. And when he comes, he's going to make all things new, and he's going to make all things right, and he's going to finally and fully save you to sin no more, and you will not be sinned against no more. No more. And the people in the early church, <laughs> they thought that would happen any minute. I mean, they, they lived as people are like, all right, Jesus is going to be here in five minutes. I, I got to get ready. They, they believed that Jesus was coming. He was, he was just around the corner. So how about us? Where are we in that? You got the second Advent app downloaded on your phone? You You ready? Are you ready for the return of Christ? Because here's the thing. You know how the early church got untangled when they got tangled up? When plagues and pandemics and persecution, when those things hit the early church, you know how they untangled themselves from them? They kept saying to themselves, oh yeah, Jesus, he's coming again. And some people will say, ah, yeah. For 2,000 years, that has been the hope of the church. That Jesus is not just some legend, some fairy tale, but he is the hope of our existence. And that nothing can ever steal that hope away. Jesus is coming again. They were eager for the return of Christ. Their greatest hope, their greatest hope was that Jesus was coming again. Let me ask you a question. What's your greatest hope? Is your greatest hope locked up in the fact that Jesus is coming again? Or is your greatest hope locked up in when we can come back to church again? Is your greatest hope wrapped up in, in the regathering of churches? or the regathering of sports, or the regathering of, of restaurants, or the, the regathering of, of anything else? Is that where your greatest hope is now? If so, then I want you to know you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> Why? I'll just use the church as an example. 
If, if you are a member of our church or whatever church you may be a member of, you may not know this, but over the last two months, your church has not become perfect. And neither have you. So, so if our hope, if our greatest hope is in things of this world and our greatest hope is not in the return of Jesus, then we will be disappointed because none of those things, as great and as wonderful as any of them may be, none of them have the power of an indestructible life. Only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus. So we need to be eager for Jesus. We need to be eager for the return of Jesus. We need to be eager to remember Jesus. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Remember Jesus till you feel that he is with you. Till his joy gets into your soul and your joy is full. Remember him till you begin to forget yourself, your temptations, and your cares. He goes on. Remember him till you begin to think of the time when he will remember you and come in his glory for you. Remember him till you begin to be like him. Remember Jesus. Be eager for Jesus. Maybe you have seen the candy challenge out there on social media. If you have not, then I encourage you to go to Jennifer Waring or Lindsay Shoup's Facebook pages, two of our great moms here in the church and watch their videos on Logan and Camden. Now, Logan and Camden were rock stars before these videos came out. Now, they're just legends, okay? And, and I don't want to give away anything, but, but let me just begin and, and tell you a little bit about the challenge if you don't know. So the challenge is, you basically put a piece of candy out in front of your kid, and then you tell them they can't touch it until you come back. And then, of course, you have your, your camera, phone, secretly filming them while you're gone. So, you know, when you watch these videos, let me just give you a heads up. When you watch Logan's, what you're going to see is what every single one of us, no matter what age we are, would do if we had candy in front of us right now. Okay, You'll see that. Just enjoy. It'll be good. And Camden's is just as fantastic. And there's this moment toward the end where she's kind of been waiting patiently. And, and she hears a noise off in the distance. And, and her eyes perk up. And she, and she looks toward the noise and, and then as if just to say to Lindsay, coming, coming. But she was, she was eager for her mom to return. She, she was eager for the candy. Listen, we ain't talking about candy. We're talking about the one thing that your soul wants the most, the one thing that your soul is desperate for, the one thing your soul is, is longing for, that's what we're talking about. And so, so what is that thing? This is what Paul says in verse 10. And Jesus is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. You may not agree with this. You may not even feel like it but I want you to know because of how God created you that what your soul wants most is to be rescued from the wrath of God. It's what your soul wants the most. 
You know, I know the wrath of God is not usually a trending topic in conversation. Many people reject the wrath of God. They, they ignore the wrath of God. They, just, they passionately object to the, the whole notion of the wrath of God. But barring the words of philosopher Nathan R. Jessup, deep down in the places that you don't talk about at Zoom parties, you want the wrath of God. You need the wrath of God. Why? Because without the wrath of God, there is no ultimate justice. I've been watching a show, it's kind of a historical fiction show about World War II for off and on for the last few weeks, and it's called Foil's War. And I'm, I'm, I'm addicted. <laughs> I just, I love it. I, I love history. And one of the things that I've picked up in, in so many of the episodes lately is that the, the war is, is now over. And it seems like every character in every episode is so discouraged. And they just keep saying things like, what, what did we fight for? What, what were we fighting for? Because we get in the middle of life and, and we forget what life is about. So in his kindness, God, in his gracious love, comes in through the Apostle Paul to say, oh, this is what you're longing for. You want to escape the wrath of God. Because without the wrath of God in existence, then ultimate justice will never be served. Think about it this way. The most well-oiled justice system in the world will still be imperfect because it was created and managed by imperfect people. It doesn't really matter. If we depend on humanity to perfectly serve justice, we will be waiting to infinity and beyond. One commentator said it this way, without the truth of divine wrath, the universe would sink into moral chaos. Why? Why would the universe sink into moral chaos if the wrath of God didn't exist? Well, here's why. Just, just, just take a moment just to, to look into your home and your school and your workplace and, and your car and your backyard in your head and you will find that you tolerate sin. Now, I don't mean that, that you tolerate sin flippantly, you know, like, hey, it's no big deal, I'm just tolerating sin, though sometimes you do. I'm not saying when we talk about tolerating sin that you're glorifying sin, that you're saying, oh, sin is great, though sometimes you do. What I'm saying is this. I'm not perfect, and neither are you. And nobody that you go to church with and nobody that you work with and nobody that you go to school with, nobody in your home is perfect. Therefore, generally speaking, we should not be looking to us for perfect justice. Now, do we take a pretty good shot at it? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Individually, we take a pretty good shot at, at justice. Our, our law enforcement system takes a pretty good shot at, at justice, no pun intended. Our, our, our court system takes a pretty good shot at justice, okay? So, so we are. Justice is good, and, and we do want to depend on the justice that God in his kindness has set up in our country and around the world. But none of us are perfect, therefore none of us can perfectly carry out justice. And so what we need, what we long for, is we want somebody at the end of the line who is a perfect judge who will finally deal with evil. 
That nobody will slip through the cracks. We want evil dealt with. If you are an atheist, an agnostic, a non-Christian, a Christian, we want, because of how we've been created, we want some sense of justice to actually happen. And the only way it will happen is through a perfect judge. And that perfect judge at the end of the line of life is the living and true God. And he is rescuing and perfectly judging by his grace through the rest rescuer Jesus the Christ that's who he is see God cannot tolerate sin he cannot tolerate the effects of sin and so in his holy love he makes sure that evil and sin will ultimately be dealt with that justice will ultimately be served now I think some people think the wrath of God will some God throwing a temper tantrum when he doesn't get his way. No. No, the, the wrath of God is not a temper tantrum. The, the wrath of God is the holy love of God perfectly stirred up to action over sin and evil. The, the wrath of God is his holy love perfectly stirred up to make sure that ultimate justice is served. It's not a temper tantrum. It's grace, grace, grace upon grace. So what does the wrath of God have to do with you? Well, 279 years ago, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon. Many of us had to read it as part of our literature, English classes somewhere in high school. I just want to read just a a portion of what he writes in that sermon. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. Just make that connection. We've, we've seen this locally and, and other places in the country where, where dams this past week have, have broken and we've seen the destruction. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. When once it is let loose, it is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. That's a good word. Use that in casual conversation. It just means yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you're every day treasuring up more wrath. That's that's why we plead with people all the time to come to Jesus. And then he says this, the waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. I just encourage you just to, to do just something so simple and yet so defining that maybe today, why don't you engage with the mere pleasures of God. And why don't you ask him to rescue you? How? By repenting of your sin. By running to Christ so that you can be finally and fully saved today and then one day completely. Saved from what? Most people say, well, I gotta be saved. What do I need to be saved from? Saved from sin? 
saved from sickness, saved from pandemics, saved from conspiracies, saved from wrath, saved from death, saved from everything. See, the salvation of Jesus is, is not just some random thing that you know, allows you to join the church. The salvation of Jesus means that you get rescued from the wrath to come. But that's a real rescue. You see, Jesus paid the first and the greatest and the most ultimate sacrifice, the only sacrifice that can make things right between you and God. I was reading a story a few weeks ago about a a British writer and, and politician. His name is Hilton Young. When he was 35 years old, he joined the, listed into the Royal Navy, and eventually he ended up on the HMS Iron Duke and served in World War I. Once when he was out at war on the ship, he, he was reflecting back on the people that he grew up with, the people from his hometown and other places. And, and he wrote a little poem, and this is part of that poem. I should not mind to die for them, my own dear downs, my comrades true, But that great heart of Bethlehem, he died for men he never knew. Those are dear and and noble and precious words from a soldier on the front lines of sacrificing for others. There is one little distinction, though. Jesus knew you. He, He knew me. When Jesus died, it wasn't confusing. He, he wasn't trying to figure out it. It wasn't for faceless people. When we were helpless and dead in our sin, at just the right time, Jesus died for us to rescue us from the wrath to come. According to all that we see in the Bible, Jesus laid his life down for you. And then God raised him from the dead for you. And then Jesus ascended into heaven for you. And one day, maybe today, straight up, folks, maybe today, maybe not, but maybe today, Jesus is coming again. And so is he coming for you? Is Jesus your first and greatest treasure? Is your faith in him and him alone? If so, then take all of your impatience, take all of your criticism, take all of your fear, all of your anger, all of your apathy, all of your conspiracy theories, just take them all and wrap them up in this blanket of truth. If you are in Christ, you have been rescued from the wrath to come. If you are in Christ, you are being rescued from the wrath to come. If you are in Christ, one day you will finally and fully be rescued from the wrath to come. And friend, if you've been rescued like that, then as it has been said, I know of no softer pillow at night than that. If you've been rescued from the wrath to come, it may be hard, but in Christ, 
we can sleep well tonight. And tomorrow morning, Lord willing, if we make it, we'll wake up with brand new compassion and brand new mercy. And listen, and tomorrow, the story will be the same. Nothing can snatch you from the hands of God. Nothing. Nothing.